0: remember this, 8 out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent, 9 out of 10 give hints in the last week, which means most people want to be saved, most people can be saved, and you can do it by doing something as simple as what you and I are doing right here, and that is starting a conversation.
1: Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Frank King was a writer for
2: The Tonight Show for 20 years and a full-time stand-up comedian for 37 years. He worked with some of the greats including Dennis Miller and Rosie O'Donnell. Today he is a suicide prevention speaker and bills himself as the mental health comedian. It's a long story. It deals with his battle with depression. And how he came out of it, Frank King, you just heard a moment ago, is my guest coming up.
0: People ask me, is Jay a nice guy? And yes, he is. I've had two aortic valve replacements. And after my first aortic valve replacement, the first phone call I got when I left cardiac ICU to a regular room was Lena. Hey, heard you had heart surgery. Good thing you didn't have it in LA. They take it out and leave it out. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Merry Christmas to you all. Happy Heineken and enjoy the holidays. It's a very special time of the year. My guest coming up in a wee moment is Frank King. You heard him a moment ago. He has an incredible story. He's given ace TEDx talks. He's going to talk about that in a moment during our interview and tell us how he became known as the mental health comedian. It's to do with his talk along the circuits on suicide prevention. Before we get to Frank King, it's time for our weekly Future Shock 2.0 with Ira Wolf, who'll address surveillance. It's taken from a recent interview. We had many requests for another look at this, and I took one of the most interesting parts where he talked about technology moving so fast that Public policy is just not keeping up with it. And all of this is in the context of surveillance and of what it means for employees and workers, why we should have some concerns. Here's Ira Wolf.
3: We're, we're way out of touch. I mean, I, I, you know, on Tuesday nights, I teach an organizational change class and we we're talking about um, disruption and technology is moving way faster than individuals can keep up with. And individuals are moving faster than businesses keep up with, but almost to the linear line, it's almost flat line. Is public policy? Yeah, and and the problem is technology has has just we're, we're living in an alternate universe. Is what tech technology allows and what public policy I won't say permits or when the rules and the regulations were made. So we're, we're not talking the same language. We're, we're basically, we got a manager from the 1980s trying to manage a remote workforce in, in 2000. And so there's just this disconnect, but it still goes back to trust. I mean, because let, let's take your scenario with with trucking. So the benefit of, of the monitoring, what should be the benefit of the monitoring is that truckers were no longer driving 18 and 20 hours a day is like you have to stop at 10 hours or 12 hours i don't know what the cutoff is but there was a time is no you cannot do that just like pilots hey they got too many hours so those times that's being monitored and they're trying to enforce it so from a public safety from an individual safety uh that makes sense but then it's like what happens after that I mean, are you know companies don't always play by the rules, and and what are the boundaries set, and do we trust people happening? But it's really odd—is it people distrust being monitored like that? But how many people that distrust the monitoring are walking around with an Apple Watch or a Fitbit, mm. and that data is being collected, and that data is being shared with insurance companies and with healthcare companies, mm. and and but. People are, are willing to do that because the benefit is, is like, well, I know I only had 8,000 steps today and I should have 10,000 or my heart rate's up uh, or my respirations are up or I need to move around a little bit. So we're willing to accept monitoring if there's a benefit to it. And we may not even understand who, who gets all the data, but there's some benefit that we get from it. The problem with businesses is it goes back to Big Brother or the authoritarian state. All that, we're moderning every step what happens, but I don't trust that you won't use that against me. You're gonna use that to compare me to somebody else, and therefore, I'm not going to get a raise. I'm not going to get a promotion. And we'll have more from Ira Wolf
2: next week. Ira is a TEDx talker, a top five global thought leader in his field, and host of the ever popular Geek, Skeezers, and Googleization podcast. I really enjoyed that segment where Ira was talking about how workers, we all love our privacy, and yet we go around with all these gadgets and phones and apps that can track our every movement. Quite ironic.
1: We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people.
2: My guest is Frank King. He is a suicide prevention speaker. He was a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years, worked with Jay Leno, and he was a full-time stand-up comedian for 37 years. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Frank King, welcome back to my show. I want to begin by introducing you one more time. You're a suicide prevention speaker. You were a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years and a full-time stand-up comedian for 37 years. You fought a lifetime battle with depression and chronic suicidality, turning that long dark journey into it. TEDx talks and insights on mental health awareness and actually one other person on this planet gave eight TEDx talks. That's the infamous or the famous, depending on your point of view. Bill Gates. I think he lives around your neck at a wood. So depression and suicide run in your family. Uh, you've thought about killing yourself more times than you can count, but you've come close enough to dying by suicide that you can tell uh, what the barrel of a gun tastes like. Pretty dark picture. Um, you've used your life lessons to start a conversation giving people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences. You believe that where there is humor, there is hope, where there is laughter, there is life. And as you finally say, nobody dies laughing. As far as we can tell, we've no evidence of that. That's
0: right. I've never seen a CSI episode. Well, we found out the cause of death. He laughed himself to death. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, I never saw somebody with the uh, the death mask is um, never you unless they manipulated or something. But you're an amazing individual. Um, I wanted to bring you back because uh, last time you were on my show, uh, we were still in the midst of COVID shutdowns, and you had come out of a nasty spat. Um, I mean, I guess in a sense, cancel culture took over, but yeah. you. Stoutly defended yourself. It was all innocent, as far as we as far as we can tell. Uh, you were doing a, a performance on a cruise liner, and you tried to do all the right thing, but those in charge didn't feel that, and it didn't have a very positive impact on your career for a while. So, tell us about that first.
0: Well, fortunately, my comedy career and my speaking career were were conveniently divided I LinkedIn is where I do most of my marketing for speaking Facebook Instagram Twitter is where people came after me so fortunately uh, didn't have didn't not, not not much blowback if any on LinkedIn I don't think they even knew I was a speaker which was perfect uh, you know somebody called me and said we're gonna make sure you never work in a comedy club again and I said can I get that in writing uh, I gave up club comedy. 25 years ago, I'm no math major, but every now and then somebody says to me, what's the difference between a club comedian and a corporate comedian? And my stock answer is about $5,000 a night plus travel. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm no math major, but you know what? That makes sense to me. So fortunately, I was able to maintain the business. Um, It was, I mean, it was a dark time. People called and said awful things. Guy called up and said, "Um, you came back to this county to kill everybody. And I said, no, I've got a list and you just made the VIP section. <laughs> so I was able to handle it with humor. And and what happened was two weeks in after it began, the, the pandemic blew up. And so I was pushed off page one, Google by the actual, you know, cause I'd been cleared by the CDC in Thailand. I've been cleared by the CDC at the Seattle airport, the end of the country, no restrictions, but nobody cared about that. So it, fortunately it blew over and, um, yeah it didn't um it didn't, yeah, it,
2: didn't, it didn't it didn't stop your career from getting to where it is now which we'll talk about in a moment but in a nutshell um you were the victim of unfortunate circumstances during that performance is that kind of it in a nutshell uh it was a he said she said kind of thing um you were not trying to violate the no. regulations on COVID, but some folks thought you did on that cruise well, liner, but that wasn't the case. Apparently, no. We
0: were never, we were never quarantined. Nobody on the ship ever got it. Um, the and I made the mistake when I spoke to the media. I spoke to the media it was a mistake, and because it was all over the media, this was a major story for. Oh my God! Gosh,
2: the, yeah. the news cycle on this was seven days or something, twenty four seven.
0: Yes, and and even though I told them that we'd never been quarantined and that there were no restrictions, the CDC cleared me on both ends. That doesn't get clicks and eyeballs. What got clicks and eyeballs was every story was titled, you know, Comedian Jumps Quarantine. You know, did he bring the virus back to the US? So cause that gets people to pay attention and click and share and like. And so yeah. unfortunately, it, it blew over. And like I said, because I my my two businesses were separate. Yeah. The speaking versus stand-up comedy. Like I said, I hadn't stand-up. I just did, by the way, stand-up comedy for the first time in 20 20 years there's a youtube program series comedy series called dry bar comedy and it, it is filmed in provo utah in a bar where they serve diet coke and popcorn no booze and and there's comedy club clean there's corporate event clean and then there's provo utah clean i mean no innuendo no double entendre no ex-wife jokes i mean it was it was a challenge i'm very clean anyway as a comedian um, but it was a challenge to come up with 25 minutes that squeaked they were so clean wow
2: but you, you pulled it off but I mean that's your entire background from it from childhood you wanted to be a stand-up comedian you wanted to write comedy and I'm sort of curious as to know where that impulse came from because ultimately you ended up writing jokes for Jay Leno yeah for many many years and we spoke about that on the last show but I'd like you to talk about that a bit
0: well, and by the way, Jay, people ask me, is Jay a nice guy? And yes, he is. I've had two aortic valve replacements. And after my first aortic valve replacement, the first phone call I got when I left cardiac ICU to a regular room was Leno. Hey, heard you had heart surgery. Good thing you didn't have it in LA. They take it out and leave it out. Uh, yeah. And, and, yeah. And here's a guy with a to-do list, I'm sure as long as his arm. And no benefit to him to call me and, you know, and say, hey, listen, give well. But he's just that kind of guy. He's just that nice. And then um, maybe I told you, was when you and I talked the first time, we were in the process of writing four books on men's mental health.
2: And there, the cat went by. He must be enjoying your jokes.
0: Yeah, one of nine. And uh, I called Leno when the fourth book is going to be published on Amazon. And I said, Jay, would you write me a blurb for the cover? To help in marketing and so he wrote me a really nice blurb and thanks to his blurb we went to number one on amazon that day it was released in three categories so bestseller in three categories
2: and the so, name of the, the title is so that anybody listening can buy it yeah.
0: yes it's guts grit and the grind guts plural grit singular and the grind a mental mechanics manual I think that's one of the things that attracted jay was it looks like an automobile owner's manual only for the male brain
2: right 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 so well he, the- he yeah his hobby and he's turned it into um part of his whole um persona and media thing is fixing automobiles and he does these road shows i guess uh, in, in if if you would call it that but he had an unfortunate brush with fire recently and he's come out of that and he, he and pardon the pun he brushed it off he, he made light of it the whole world was rooting for him and you you could just listening to the radio commentary and the news stories you you clearly got the sense that he was a very nice guy everybody was cheering him on oh yeah world recovery and
0: back to work doing stand-up within three weeks yeah he has an amazing work ethic he would used to he used to he would get off the Saturday of night show because you know it's filmed in Pacific time in the afternoon, like five to six thirty. P. He would go to the Burbank airport, which is because uh, it was filmed in Burbank. Jump on a plane, fly to Las Vegas, do a show that night at one of the big hotels, pick up a check for two hundred fifty thousand dollars, fly home. Jeez! Somebody I think- said to him, Jay, how do you square that mentally? Getting you know flying over several times a week, picking up a check. You know,
2: it's kind of like winning the lottery every day. <laughs> I like that. The way you described it for me was uh, back in the day. Of course, now social media is much more advanced. You would fax in your jokes.
0: Yeah,
2: right. Like and
1: they,
2: that's how. I mean, I guess they don't do that anymore. But you were doing it anyway. And you'd fax in, and and then what? Jay or the producers would select. If I like this one. Frank, I like that one. This one's how would it work?
0: We faxed in until into the end of the early 2000s. I had to keep a fax machine because that was Jay's. Even though you could have done it on a computer far easier, you still faxed them in. There was somebody tasked on the staff to pick up all the faxes and transfer all the jokes to index cards. And then they would give Jay a pack of index cards. He'd go to the Hermosa Beach Comedy Magic Club. And stand on stage with the cards in his hand and go through them one right after another. And when one hit, I guess he put it in his pocket. And when it didn't, he probably dropped it on the floor. And that's how he road tested the jokes.
2: Wow. And uh I don't want to know the business model uh because you were successful at doing it, but did you get paid for what was used or was did you have a contract?
0: Uh we were contract labor, we only got paid it on spec. You know, you send the joke in, he uses it, you got a check for seventy five dollars.
2: Actually, oh, $75 for a joke? Wow.
0: And I, I really wasn't doing it for the money. Mm. I was doing it two things. Uh, every now and then, he would need an additional writer to be on staff in Burbank. Mm. And a couple of the guys that he had at the end there, he had plucked from obscurity, uh, fax writers who came to work inside and gotten the writer's guild. Uh, the second thing was because, you know, things like, I know someday, um, I might, I didn't think I'd ever write a book and need a blurb, but. I figured he's such a nice guy. I could probably ask him for a favor. And when, it, when he went to CNBC and the night show ended, um, I asked him for a video, you know, sort of pimping my corporate yeah. comedy and he, I, you know, I, uh, NBC doesn't like to do video. Well, but I tell you what, um, if I can ever do you a favor, you know, if you get a chance to do another morning show, radio show, and it's like you and another person are, you know, they're trying to decide just, Hey, give me the phone number the name of the program director at the radio station i'll call and see if i can't strong i him into you know
2: yeah yeah
0: just i kept bit. that in my back pocket for 12 years
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then when i needed a blurb
2: you can pick I, up I, the phone
0: yeah pick up the phone and call them so
2: wonderful um you call yourself today the mental health comedian mm-hmm. So explain that connection to listeners. So mental health comedian um, and you're in the suicide prevention business. That didn't come out of a vacuum because you've had uh, your own experiences (laughs) with the dark side. Tell us about that and tell us how you apply humor to it, because there is that old saying, laughter is the best medicine.
0: Yes. And tragedy plus time equals comedy. Mm. Um, So, I told my first joke in the fourth grade. I was nine years old. The kids laughed, the teacher was hysterical. She was so hysterical she had to excuse herself to go to the teacher's lounge. <laughs> and at that moment I thought to myself, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. And in 12th grade, I'd taken three years of drama. I had never gotten a speaking part in any of the school plays. And I thought to myself, I can see a pattern here. So I thought I'll do the talent show coming up this spring. And if I do stand-up, I can write, direct, produce, and star my own little show every night. So I did the talent show, and I won. And I told my mama, I'm going to L.A. to be a comedian. She said, no, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder, for all I care, but you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill, got a couple of college degrees, and then moved to San Diego, California with the insurance company I was working for. And just by chance, there's a comedy store branch there a branch of the world-famous comedy store that's up on Sunset in L.A. On stage, first five minutes, halfway through my set, I heard a voice inside my head, you're home. And my second thought was, I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how. Matter of fact, I threatened in the meantime to write a keynote called, what could you do if you didn't know no better? Mm. Because I had no idea how hard it was to make a living doing stand-up. But I said to my girlfriend a year and a half later, I'm going on the road to be a stand-up comedian. Do you want to come along? Figuring she'd go, Oh, heck no. She goes, Yeah. So December 26,
3: 1985,
0: we headed out on the road and we're on the road together, nonstop, no home, for 2,629 nights in a row.
2: Oh my gosh.
0: Seven years in chain. And we're back in the day they had what they call the comedy condo. If you're working with two other comedians that week in a club, they put you up in a condo. So you live with them as well as work with them. And we lived with and worked with Seinfeld and Rosie and Dennis Miller and Foxworthy and Ron White, and Adam Sandler, Ellen DeGeneres, you know, Kevin James, back when they were just comics. And an amazing, we had a ball. I mean, yeah. we were, we were mid twenties to mid thirties, late thirties, you know, footloose and fancy free driving around the country comedy club boom busted, and that's when I made the jump corporate comedy, you know, the after dinner rubber chicken circuit mm. at conventions, and that's you know that's when I started went from five hundred dollars a night to five thousand dollars a night. Uh, that lasted until the last recession, and corporate bookings dropped off eighty percent, practically overnight. And my wife and I lost everything we had worked for in twenty five years in a Chapter Seven bankruptcy, and that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Uh spoiler alert, as I say, I didn't pull the trigger. Um, but when conferences came back, meeting planner said, Frank, we love you. We just can't pay you that kind of money anymore just to be funny. You have got to teach the audience something. And then it occurred to me, uh, given my mental illnesses and the fact that my family, uh, you know, is nuttier than a squirrel turd. And I came so close to killing myself. I thought, you know what? If I get some training in suicide prevention, I could keynote on that. And what I discovered was even though one person dies of suicide every nine minutes in the U S hardly anybody talks about it, unless you bring it up. And then almost everybody has a story. Second hurdle was how do I convince meeting planners I can do something serious after two and a half decades of stand-up? And that's what my wife famously suggested do a TEDx. And I said, what's a TEDx. I got a TEDx invitation to apply that week. And so I thought, what the heck I'll apply. And I got it. And at age 52, I came out of the mental health closet as depressed and suicidal. Nobody knew that. My friends, my family, or my wife had no idea. And I did it on stage in a suicide prevention keynote, essentially, TED talk. I talked about suicide prevention. And that actually helped me rebrand immediately.
2: Mm. I became
0: the mental health comedian. And and people ask me, does it being a comedian hold you back? Does it not get you the gig? I go, No, you missed the point. They want the lived experience, which I have. They want the, you know, the learning outcomes, objectives. They want you to teach the audience something. And the fact that I can do it with a little bit of well-placed organic humor oftentimes pushes me over the top. It's a really difficult topic, and it's easier to digest if I can make them laugh a little.
3: Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America Network of Food Banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding
1: America and the Ad Council.
2: My guest is Frank King. He is a suicide prevention speaker. He was a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years, worked with Jay Leno, and he was a full-time stand-up comedian for 37 years. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. So when everything um, fell apart uh, because of the recession and you know losing your home, you plunged into a deep depression?
0: Yes, uh, because the depression I have is called major depressive disorder, which is generally not situational. I've been most depressed some of the best times in my life. It's more like a wheel with a flat spot that comes up every now and then. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it was situational. We'd lost everything. And I had a million-dollar life insurance policy, so I thought, I can fix this. Mm. In suicidality, there's something called burdensomeness.
1: Mm -hmm. Many
0: people who are suicidal feel the world would be better off without them. And I knew my wife would be better off financially without me because she would have a million dollars could be restored financially. Uh, problem was, the insurance policy I had had a 24-month suicide clause, and I, I had only had the policy 22 months. <laughs> I had to wait two months to kill myself. But I thought, well, hell, I can do that. Fortunately, it must have gotten a little better because by day 61, you know, I wasn't marking days off the calendar until I killed myself. I don't remember the first time i thought wait a minute the life insurance is in force i can kill myself i don't remember when unfortunately i don't remember when that was that suicide's selfish don't you aren't you thinking about the people you're going to leave behind well with burdensomeness you in fact are thinking about the people you're going to leave behind you figure they'd be better off so it's kind of selfless from the inside looking out
2: there was a guardian angel there too i i, I think Um, but what led you to your recovery? Was it a a new consciousness? You went into treatment, um, and then you took it from there.
0: No, I just, you know, gutted my way through it. Yeah. Life got a little better, you know, fractional, a fraction better, you know, every day. Um, I mean, a long pull, Hmm. you know, chapter seven affects your credit for 10 years. And we started we did what a lot of people don't do is we started rebuilding our credit after the bankruptcy. We bought a book on, you know, life after bankruptcy and what you need to do when you get a credit card with a small limit and you pay your bills on time and, you know, slowly but surely. Your credit score goes back up and then, you know, your credit limit goes back up and then at the 10 year mark, your credit score actually jumps because the chapter seven goes off your credit report, yeah. And so now we were down in the I was down in the mid three hundreds on my you know scores, and now we're up bumping up against eight hundred. Since I mean we worked our way back slowly but surely over twelve over.
2: So career wise and financially, you're on the road back, and you're busy. You're doing stand up, some stand up, but you also um, do a TED talk seminars, tutorials, that's a new part of you.
0: Yes, a friend of mine, wisely, at the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020, I was already coaching TEDx for money. And he said, look, Frank, I'm worried because I don't know when live speaking engagements are going to come back. And this is before people were doing a lot of them virtually. He said, I don't want to tell you how to run your life, but I would focus on, I would market your TEDx coaching because you can do it from anywhere, your living room or anywhere. And so I went from about six students. Now I've got probably two and a half dozen students that I meet with them each one hour a week. If they, I mean, they have my time one hour a week. Not everybody shows up every week. But given, an and we fill out one or two applications and um, I would say probably 80% of my clients have gotten to TEDx and we're still working on the other 20%. It was a wise decision to focus on that. Then slowly but surely virtual speaking became a thing. So I, I would sit here at my desk and do a virtual keynote. I've got one schedule March 1st that's virtual. So about you know five or ten percent still virtual, but live engagements began to come began to come back.
2: Why do people do TED or TEDx talks? Obviously it brands them, it gives yep. a, an incredible visibility. It could be a wonderful thing for their self-confidence, although they may need to be have a lot of confidence before they get on the stage and to be kind of an instant celebrity. And I've heard stories of people who've given TED Talks, their career took off like a rocket.
0: Yeah, I think the trick there is there are millions of videos that go up on YouTube every day. I can't remember how many millions, but millions. And so just doing a TED Talk and having it posted on YouTube, the world is not going to be the path to your door. So when I do my TEDx coaching, I take it to the next step. We work on leveraging that for more speaking gigs, higher fees, sell more books, whatever their goals are. So... You know, I've got a source where if they want a million views, I can turn them over to a guy I know in Australia who can get them a million legitimate views. That's how you, but you have to work hard to leverage that talk. It brings you credibility and some visibility on YouTube, although you need to work hard on getting more. And then marketability. You put the TEDx on your homepage, you know, put the little thumbnail. See Frank in action. And they click on it, it takes them right to a TEDx talk. So, And also, you know, photographs from the day. I always have a photographer there, so you have stills. So you have that all over your website. So if you're up against a speaker in the same topic area, and you've got a TED talk or two, and they don't have one, it might give you a leg up. How long is a talk? Uh, the committee decides, the TEDx committee, they can give you anywhere from 6 minutes to 18 minutes. They pick. Now, when you fill out the application, you, ask, you tell them how long you'd like to speak. 10 to 12 minutes, 12 to 15, or 15 to 18. And I always tell my clients, pick the one in the middle, 12 to 15, because the 18-minute ones are fewer of those than they are of the other. Yeah. It's a timed event. Uh, But they ultimately decide how long you're going to speak.
2: Without giving away all the secret sauce here, because they can go and call you up and do one of your uh, seminars or tutorials. Yeah. I mean, are there points you got to hit home to be successful in a TED Talk? Do you have to grab the audience and the viewers by the scruff of the neck and and win them over is there some how do you appeal to a big audience
0: Well, actually let's back up first you have to grab the selection committee by the scruff (laughs) and (laughs) And you have to be nice to them I guess yes and get their attention the average TEDx call probably gets 150 200 applications and if I'm on the selection committee and I got to slog through that many applications. I'm not looking for a reason to give you an audition. I'm looking for the first reason not to yeah. and throw you in the no pile. So think of it as a marketing pitch to the selection committee uh, to get the audition. So I believe that the, the, l- the linchpin in that is creativity. It has to be something that'll pique their curiosity, You know, something counterintuitive, something really interesting. And I believe the way to do that is with the title and subtitle, or the elevator pitch, which I believe you can you can repurpose the title and the subtitle to an elevator pitch. Two of the TEDx's I've done, the title and the subtitle, an idea were good enough. I didn't have to audition. The first one was Suicide, The Secret of My Success, which is counterintuitive. Dead Man Talking, which is a play on the book and movie Dead Man Walking. And again, they call and said, no, you don't have to audition. You just come on up here and do that. <laughs> that told me that that's the first hurdle. Get their attention. So, I suggested my clients make the title something where we know the English words, but we're not sure what you're getting at, forces them to read the subtitle. And if they do that, maybe they'll read the three sentence summary and why you're the pro. I'm well, to read as far as possible down the list. So, creativity, uh, apply all over the place. I've never done a TEDx I didn't have to fly to unless it was virtual, never done one in the Northwest where we live. So apply all over all of you. Keep applying until it's a bit of a numbers game.
2: You strike me as somebody who's an incredible imagination and a funny and obviously of a sense of humor. And I'm trying to understand where it comes from, because even that title, Suicide, the secret of my success, it got my attention. Yeah. You know, that's all I, I I read. You know, I said, who's this Frank King? Where did you get this? Do you, are you constantly thinking of funny things, or do you see the irony in life? Or?
0: Uh, its I believe, and I'm doing my eighth TEDx talk on this. The eighth Your TEDx eighth talk.
2: One is, where, when is that going to happen?
0: Well, it's, it's virtual because a TEDx event in India in the state of Assam found me okay. on LinkedIn. They like my take on mental health, mental illness. They said, you know, we've never heard anybody talk about the positive aspects of mental illness. So they said, would you do a talk? I said, sure. And it's called, I'm not broken. I was made this way. Mm. And the the premise is, it starts like this. What if those of us living with a mental illness are not living with a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation? And what if mental illness is, as Malcolm Gladwell says of such things in his book, David and Goliath, a desirable disadvantage? You Mm. would never wish it on anybody, but what if it comes with advantages? And finally... What if mental illness is not a singularity, simply a disability, but in fact, a duality, a combination of mental disability and oftentimes several amazing uh abilities? Because I believe that I'm not broken. I believe I was made this way. I believe my depression and thoughts of suicide are simply the flip side of my creativity, imagination, and comic ability. Mm -hmm. Same wiring, same brain. Um, A friend of mine needed a title for his stand-up. You know how how is he going to be introduced on stage by the MC? And what he does is he goes to Facebook, link a uh, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever, and sees a meme that he likes, and he turns a meme into a personal story. He makes it about him. So that's that's his thing. Nothing original except it's a story about him. He goes. I need to have a title that lets the audience and the other comedians in the room know. That I know this is not original. This is from a meme on Facebook. Kind of a disclaimer because comics get really upset if somebody finds something on Facebook and goes on stage and does it. They feel that's not fair. Mm. You know, it's not original. Um, so because I need it, I need an introduction that that lets people know I know exactly what I'm doing. So it took me 48 hours, but I said to him on Monday night, his name's Glenn Friesman. I said, how about this, Glenn? Glenn, the meme man, freeze man, making all your favorite memes come true. Okay. <laughs> goes, oh, dear God. And I said to my wife, well, it took me 48 hours. And she goes, honey, <laughs> 48 hours? Do you have any idea? I mean, that, she goes, it's, it's magical. Mm. It's, I mean, it, and this, I just put it in my head, let my brain go to work on it. Yeah. Usually I wake up with it, the answer. A friend of mine is um uh, he speaks on what they call soft skills, business soft skills. Yeah. Social intelligence, communication, and individuation. He said to me, Frank, I need a tagline. I said, All right, Anthony, well, I'm going to bed. I'll I'll call you in the morning or text you in the morning. So his name is Anthony Metten, Soft Skills. So I wake up at three in the morning, which is when I get up. And I had it. And I texted him, Anthony Metton, soft skills, concrete results. <laughs> oh, love it. I get a text love back. A, you should you be writing
2: headlines for the New York Post. That's yeah. brilliant.
0: Well, he writes me back at 3 in the morning. He goes, A, you woke me up. Hmm. And B, did you think of that in your sleep? I go, yeah, pretty much. That's my process. That's And I, it's just the way my brain – I say in my talk, this eighth one, I can teach you to write stand-up and perform stand-up. I cannot teach you to process the incoming information the way my, my miswired brain does.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's just
0: the way it processes – you know i'm on a plane a delta flight and it's they've just changed the rules you can now use your iphone or ipad on takeoff or landing mm. if it's in the airplane mode yeah, now, yeah. the flight attendant has to tell us this but it's not written down anywhere and it's not in the you know their spiel they could do in their sleep about the you know the seat cushions oxygen mask floor path lighting so i know she's going to have to make up whatever it is she's going to say so i'm on the edge of my seat and she goes uh she gets to that part she goes ladies and gentlemen due to new faa regulation she freezes. You can almost hear her thinking. Then she gets inspired. She goes, ladies and gentlemen, do two new FAA regulation. If you have small equipment, well, you can continue playing with it. I'm bent over doubling my seat laughing. Nobody else in the plane. My seatmate thinks I've lost my mind. He goes, what? And I go, let's review. Before I can review, she comes back on and goes, if you have large equipment, well, you have to shove that out of the seat in front of you. So I'm down on my knees. Uh, Everybody on the plane heard exactly the same thing I did, you know, and I just made the, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's, that's what is what I believe is the, the yin and yang of mental ability and mental disability. And at the end of the talk, I say, well, what do we do with this, Frank? Well, why don't we, with children, put them in a curriculum that minimizes the impact of the mental disability and maximizes, energizes, and celebrates their mental abilities, and then steer them in a, on a career path where whoever they go to work for will prize their special abilities. Um, 30, 30 Fortune 500 companies in the U.S. are now hiring people on the autism spectrum for the one thing they do amazingly well and paying them handsomely. And, you know, these are people who are moving out of their parents' basement for the first time. ever. The, the, the unemployment rate among people on the autism spectrum is somewhere bumping up against 80 percent. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Microsoft in 2015 started a program um, and they trained the people who are hiring to focus on these people's, you know, abilities. We'll deal with the social, you know, the missing social cues and that kind of thing. But we want to focus on what they, they can do so well.
2: People with autism, it depends on what part of the spectrum you're on, and have extraordinary creative abilities and innate talents that, let's say, the rest of the
0: population doesn't have. Yes. Uh, People with OCD or ADHD are, you know, they're hyper-aware, and they they oftentimes um, have an attention to detail, and they're very precise. So why not steer them into a career like banking, engineering, where attention to detail is treasured? um the people with dyslexia Mm. spatial reasoning thinking outside the box um you know steer them into careers that will value that particular ability
2: we don't seem to have gotten that far yet in, in our society right that where people are selected and giving a lift up advantaged if you will if they have some kind of if they have dyslexia or autistic abilities, you said eighty percent unemployment rate among the autistic population. It yep. seems strange why that hasn't been leveraged by um, human resource departments and by the business and manufacturing communities and the artistic community even.
0: Well, part of the problem is I've got a friend who speaks keynotes on the benefits of a neurodiverse workplace where not everybody thinks the same. But the business has to be prepared for people who are on the spectrum oftentimes, you know, miss social cues. It can be very blunt to the point of pain. And I've got a friend who has Asperger's and she misses social cues. And I said to her, what social cues? She said, Frank, if I knew, I wouldn't miss them. (laughs) So You have to integrate them into the workplace and everybody has to buy in you know because like i said because they're socially
2: yeah
0: i got in trouble once i was working for a radio station group and somebody complained to the manager of the group that i wouldn't look him in the eye when i was talking to him he said he's always looking up into his left he's not paying attention and my boss i had worked for like 20 years prior in another radio station and he goes no no let me tell you something Frank is probably listening more close to you than anybody else you talk to in a day. What he's doing is, when he's looking up and to the left, he's processing what you're saying. And he's, you know, he's, he's if there's anything in his brain that that ties into what you're saying, that maybe you're asking for help or whatever, he is going through some kind of rolodex in his head. That's why he looks up into the left. Uh, he really can't. But that's what I'm doing. I'm I'm I have a two track mind. I can remember the first time it I realized that on stage, I'm in the middle of a joke. I'm speaking the joke out loud. But part of my brain was looking at the guy in the front row with the ugly Christmas sweater, and I'm thinking about him and what I'm going to say to him. And at that moment, I realized, oh dear God, am I still talking? Is a joke coming out of my mouth making sense? <laughs>
3: because uh, i was running on t-
0: tracks simultaneously
2: yeah what's it like um being a stand-up comedian at corporate events
0: hr will pay a great deal of money not to tear the roof off just for everybody to have a reasonably good time and most importantly nobody get offended i've said to a meeting planner who pushed back on my price at five grand back in the day five grand for 45 minutes of jokes i go look Hey, you're not telling you're not paying me five grand for the jokes I tell. You're paying me five grand for the jokes I don't tell. You're paying me so when I get done with my little job, you still have a job. Okay. That resonated because that's why you that's why I got that kind of money. That's that's a dirty little secret about clean comedy, is you it pays really well because A, it's more difficult than dirty comedy. And B, you can do it at colleges, cruise ships, corporate events, wherever. So, yeah, that's. Um,
2: so um, what sort of jokes fly well at a corporate event? Um, are they about golfing or the Christmas party or um, the boss did a fender bender one day on the way to work and you know, silly things?
0: Yeah, most of it is sort of Seinfeld-esque. And it's about my life and funny things that have happened.
2: Yeah. Uh
0: run-of-the-mill relatables, some things that happen to everybody. I will often ask, who can I make fun of? And get some information on them so I can, you know, I can bring back up that fender bender or whatever. I also ask, tell me who does not want to be singled out? Because comics have an innate ability to single out the one person that really does not want to be spotlighted. It's like, it's yeah. like, a, it's like some kind of lion looking to the, you know, the herd of gazelles. They always spot the one with a limp. So, yeah. So you always ask, well, who doesn't want to be, you know? And I've done. I did a show for J.P. Morgan Chase and Jamie Dimon, and I met with him. He said, "Frank, I want you to make fun of me on stage." What had happened was one of the divisions. There was a big uproar about some I don't know, maybe it was a policy or procedure, and it was the uh, one of the credit card divisions. And I mean, people were just really upset, so they wanted me to come out and do a little stand-up and introduce Jamie and make fun of him in front of the rank and file, which is brilliant because I do it, he takes it well. So he comes on stage, I introduce him, he comes on stage, he's standing right next to me, he's wearing a salmon colored shirt, you know, kind of a pink. I go, hey Jamie, that's a good looking shirt. Does it by chance come in a man's style? (laughs) (laughs) The audience went nuts to see me hammering Jamie about his shirt. And then they said, "Frank, we're gonna have a little Q&A and we're gonna give you the answers to some softball questions we have set up people in the audience to ask you. So the first three questions you're going to have the answer to, and you're going to answer. And then what we're waiting for is somebody to ask a question, the one, the, the subject they're really pissed about. And sure enough, number four, a woman stands up, she's shaking and practically crying. She is so mad. And she looks at me and she asks a question. And I pause, lean forward like I'm going to answer. And I go, hey, Jamie, take this one. And everybody laughs. He took the question, and we put the whole thing to bed. All of a sudden, the whole tone in the room changed, like shattering glass. And so, yeah, Jamie's not. Jamie's no idiot. He knew that if I made fun of him and he handled it well, that would humanize him. All of a sudden,
2: you humanized Jamie Diamond um leader of a major banking enterprise globally Brilliant. quite a sure. quite an extraordinary coup to be uh recruited to speak in front of all that all those employees um do you ever break into cold sweats when you're on stage or are you cool calm and collected as you are now with me
0: uh the only time i get really nervous and i thought flop sweat was a myth you know where all of a sudden you're under your armpits is just coming <laughs> the faucets get turned on it's not a myth it happens uh, it happens i get nervous when it's going to be on video like when i did the dry bar comedy five camera shoot it's on video uh when i do a tedx talk because it's time you can't go over a certain time you know you are doing a keynote and you got 45 minutes you can wander around verbally you know side you know whatever but you know you gotta crank it out and you're not allowed notes so you have to memorize it although i must admit I use a PowerPoint as a mnemonic device. I've been lost in the middle of a key uh, TEDx and just fired the next slide. Oh, and gone. And I write on my hand. And I've stopped in the middle of a TEDx, looked at my hand, the audience has seen me looking at my hand. And I go, yeah, I did that, did that. Oh, and they start laughing. And I turn my hand to the audience and go, palm pilot. And then into the next whatever, wherever I was supposed to be. But that makes me nervous. In fact, it's time, it's gonna be on video, it's gonna live forever on youtube so
2: before you go on stage and you're in the green room or whatever they're talking and you're prepping and so on do you get into a mental frame are you kind of shaking and trembling or do you do breathing exercises
0: no i'm actually more comfortable on stage than i am in real life mm. I, from the time i was in ninth grade i realized i was born to be at the front of the room on stage so you can wake me from a sound sleep you're on and <laughs> <Yeah>. I, just, <laughs> I just boom hi you know i'm, I'm losing my hair and <laughs> yeah, no, I I just feel really comfortable up there. And a friend of mine, when i back when I was doing a lot of cruise work, not a friend of mine, I'm sorry, somebody in the audience came up after my show. Now I had been fired off a number of cruise lines previous, and not I wasn't drinking, it wasn't like I was drugging or running around. I mean, just personality conflict with the cruise directors, wrong cruise director, wrong time. They're very powerful, and so I decided at that point that I was going to invest no more emotional energy in trying to be good in my shows on cruise ships because I had great shows and been fired, bad shows and been fired. So it really didn't matter. So I, I just um, quit caring. I cared the show went well. I never had a good time, but I didn't stress about, you know, it didn't push. A mm. guy comes up to me after my show we're the only ones in the theater and he goes, man, I got to ask you a question. And I go, shoot, how do you get that comfortable up there? I said, do you really want to know? He goes, yeah. Now, by the way, I'm quoting myself. I said, because I don't give a shit. And my show got 25% better when I wasn't pushing and giving, you know, uh, because I was was relaxed. The audience was relaxed. I do a lot of audience work. I talk to the audience and ask them leading questions. I've got jokes lined up. Anybody here besides me had open heart surgery? Really? What'd you have done? Bypass. How many bypasses did you have? I don't know. I was asleep.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So in other words, there's a life lesson in that, um, be prepared for failure and don't take don't take life maybe even your career seriously to the point of destruction although prepare and deliver
0: yeah deliver And my shows are st- i mean i i i made an effort i'm to have the best show i possibly could but for some reason when i didn't care whether i got fired or not you did, be- I did better because i wasn't worried about it i thought you know i'll just do the best scan and if, if i if i continue great if i don't that's fine too I, and standing when i do speaking Somebody, some show I was on there, how do you become, how do you tell, you know, here's my question today for the panel. How do you get confident on stage? And they got to me and I said, well, you stand in your truth and you don't have to worry about it. Confident. Every now and then they pass out evaluation forms to the audience and the meeting planner will say to me, do you want copies of the evaluation forms? No, no, <laughs> no. I get up, I do the best I can. They like it great. They don't I don't care. Um, again, I get put effort in, I do the best I can. And it's my, you know, with the with the suicide prevention,
2: yeah. it's
0: my story. I'm up there trying to save lives. It's hard to take issues. Some psychologist said to me, uh, what qualifies you to talk about suicide prevention? You're not a psychiatrist or psychologist or, you know, even a social worker. I said, I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. I said, you know, you're a psychiatrist or psychologist, whatever. I said, I can learn everything you know. I can go to college and learn everything you know. You will never know what I know. Oh. <laughs> so when you
2: you combine the comedy with the mental health, so do you, you go up on stage and you tell self the self deprecating humor and you poke fun at yourself and you talk about mental health?
0: Is that a is that your stick? Actually, I tell funny personal anecdotes. Uh, I talk about, you know, putting a gun in my mouth and a friend of mine was at a keynote. He came up afterwards and he never heard me say, and I didn't pull the trigger. So he comes up and goes, Hey man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? And I said, Hey man. Could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? (laughs) So real, I said to the audience in my first TEDx, my grandmother killed herself with a gas stove. My great aunt killed herself with a refrigerator. What is it with my family and major appliances? I go buy Home Depot, I tear up. (laughs) So it's funny, personal anecdotes. A woman called me up, meeting planner, and she said, Frank, you're doing our keynote. Um, I said, yes, Michelle, what would you like me to cover? Now she knows I put a gun in my mouth, but she says, just give me a couple of bullets. So I pause, so give her a second to think about that. She goes, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I go, relax, Michelle. It was just too good to let go by. Those kind of stories.
2: They're funny. So yeah. so your audience, are they um, people who come because they want to hear about mental health and see it all made it turned into humor? Or are there people in the audience who have mental health issues? Is it a combination?
0: Uh, both. 25% of the people in the U.S. apparently have a mental challenge. Yeah. But I get hired by, let's say, construction, because construction, construction industry has the highest rate of suicide in the U.S. 1,000 people die by accident in the U.S. in construction f- every year. 5,000 die by suicide, meaning you're five times more likely to jump off the building than fall off. mm So they bring me in and I teach how to spot the signs and symptoms of depression and thoughts of suicide, what to do and say, what not to do, what not to say, and how to find resources. So I'm educating the rank and file oftentimes, construction workers and their managers on spotting, you know, whether one of their fellow workers is having an issue. And then how do you approach them about that? Uh, Because 8 out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. 9 out of 10 give hints in the last week leading up to an attempt, which means most people can be saved, don't want to be saved, if you know what to look for and listen for. That's the heart and soul of my keynote.
2: Do you list these talks to the construction workers with humor, or is it all serious? Well, you have to go to this, you have to do that. You know, It's a balancing act, I would think.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, and it's not a lot of humor, but just enough. There's a psychological principle that if you have to tell somebody something serious and you follow it with something humorous, you know, they call it comic relief for a reason. Then the next serious piece of business you need to deliver, their brain is more prepared because you give them that break that sort of, you know, cleared the palate, mental palate, and then in the next serious piece. So I try to, and I try to end on a high note. Mm. I have a very somber story at the end about why I don't kill myself. The number one reason i don't kill myself. And then I say, look, I'd like to leave it on a high note. Every now and then as somebody who lives with mental illness, when somebody asks me how I'm doing, I want to tell them. Instead of going, living the dream, another day in paradise. I said, I crawled into Uber one afternoon, got the an Uber. And I'd been, I'd done two, two, three hour CE, you know, continuing education presentations in a day. That's a lot mm. for a speaker. I was exhausted. And when I get tired, the little editor in my head goes to sleep. So the nice young man in the front seat, the Uber driver, our eyes lock in the rear view mirror. And he says, hey, man, how you doing? I thought I'm going to tell him I'm depressed and suicidal, dude. How about you? <laughs> <He's freezing. laughs> and He goes, what am I supposed to say to that? I said, do you really want to know? He goes, yeah, you're supposed to ask if I have a plan, which is the protocol. Mm. He goes, uh, do you have a plan and then it hits him and he turns in his seat and he goes oh dear god does it involve uber <laughs> you so just I leave the audience with that you know kind of on a high note
2: yeah yeah my
0: goal yeah. is to make them laugh make them cry make them laugh well so, i think
2: america in in today's war, we need more laughter right we need more laughter we need more humor and jokes i mean turn on tv at night This channel is giving out about this. Then you turn on to CNN. They're getting all serious about this. Fox is getting serious about this. CNBC is getting serious about this. I mean, that's fine to be serious. We all have to have serious moments, but there's no comic relief. It's quite unnatural, I think.
0: Well, and I try to, and I try to teach my speaker coaching clients. I try to make them laugh, make them cry make them laugh. If you can move them emotionally, um, a mediocre keynote, that moves them emotionally is far more powerful than a sparklingly good keynote that does not move them emotionally. There are several places in my keynote where I get choked up and so do members of the audience. Mm. Um, And then, then you bring in the comic relief you can. And then, then like I said, I've got a closing story about why I don't kill myself. That's that, especially for women who've had children. Uh, It's about my mom and her difficulty getting pregnant and so forth. Um, I mean, it, it, chokes him up and then i do the uber thing to yeah you know, to yeah them in on a high note
2: yeah yeah well we're almost out of time how can people reach you frank king
0: uh the mental health com, or as we say down in the southern united states the mental health com. <laughs> and um
2: i know you travel all over but you're based out of oregon
0: oregon, oregon. Ah, okay
2: I think Bill Gates has a home up there.
0: In Seattle somewhere. I'm, I'm or
2: that area, general area. So maybe yes. that's maybe that's TED Talk kind of terror. Maybe there's something in the air on the water that makes people yeah. like you and Bill give TED Talks. I'm not sure. But we'll we'll come together again very soon and you'll make me laugh and cry and I will learn more about your <clears> career. <throat> and thank you for giving me this time.
0: Oh yeah. It was my pleasure. I would, did do we tell everybody that I've forgotten I've been home before. You know, Frank, you've been here before. I have. and i came back man what was i thinking oh lord
2: (laughs) um very good you have a good christmas happy new year keep making people laugh
0: well and remember this eight out of ten people who are suicidal are ambivalent nine out of ten give hints in the last week which means most people want to be saved most people can be saved and you can do it by doing something as simple as what you and i are doing right here and that is starting a conversation
1: You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973 529 4699. That's 973 529 4699. 973 529 4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's Burndesk B-Y-R-N-E-desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.